Welcome to the Boardrooms Best, the podcast for CEOs, board directors, investors, leaders, and those who want to rise and serve in the boardrooms of public, private, family-owned, charitable foundations, and exciting high-flying entrepreneurial companies. I'm Nancy May, the CEO of the Boardbench Companies, and I'm your host here today at the Boardrooms Best. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another episode of the Boardrooms Best. I'm your host, Nancy May, and I have the privilege to be sitting here with a good friend, Andrea Gordon. Now, you've got to think that everybody is my good friend, because I usually say that at the beginning of each show. But honestly, I do know these people. And even if I know them just a little bit, they get to know me really well later on. (laughs) So as I mentioned, our guest here today is Andrea Gordon, and she's an attorney with Evershields and Sutherland. And she does some really interesting work, not only just, I shouldn't say just advising uh, mid-cap and some of the world's largest corporations on U.S. SEC and regulatory issues, but she is an FCPA expert and has worked with boards and CEOs and, and general counsels just chasing these issues all over the world. They are fascinating, but this show is really interesting. We are going to be dealing with mystery, intrigue, a little bit of murder, missing persons for sure, and corporate mayhem. What we're going to do is go in and start talking about some interesting things that you may not know about. As directors, you should. It's called the FCPA, the the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Something that most directors know about, it is at the tip of everybody's tongue at some point in the course of their career, which they've taught about, been taught about. But for new directors or people who don't know about this, this is kind of an interesting space. Yes. So uh, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act basically prohibits bribery, corruption, um, and make sure that companies are representing that they are conducting business in an ethical way, both American companies and those incorporated and headquartered abroad. Something we should be doing anyway. I mean, the golden rule that hopefully everybody's been brought up on, but that doesn't always necessarily apply to different cultures around the world. Not that they're not ethical, but it's just a different way of operating, correct? Right. And in certain countries, certain jurisdictions, it is incredibly difficult to operate and to get business done without engaging in some form of payments. In some cultures, in some countries, it's just a way of doing business and and living. But not here in the United States. (laughs) Not here in the United (laughs) States, no. Although I do, years back, there was somebody who actually approached me, a friend who had a, a small business and said, Nancy, what do I do? I've got a client who wants me to give them a financial gift in order to do business with that company. Yeah, I, it was it was one of those, well, you can do what you want, but if you get caught, you may have regretted that decision. Right. So it, a small gift, right? Um, giving somebody a, a mug with your company logo on it. Buying them probably, lunch or dinner. It's not right. that, but we're talking about fairly substantial. Exactly. And it doesn't have to be just a payment. It can be anything from an offer of employment, a trip somewhere, some sort of sports game tickets. All of that qualifies. Sports Uh, game tickets too? Absolutely. Well, I guess it depends if it's the Super Bowl and you're taking 
Uncle John and Aunt Sally and and their entire family along, then that could possibly be. Yeah, right. The cheap seats maybe not so much, but the box seats probably. Yeah, well, that's that's something to consider. But the Foreign Corruption Practice Act or the FCPA actually started back in 1977 under President Jimmy Carter. Is that correct? Yes, after the Watergate scandal. And people were interested in how companies were operating. So it was the Watergate scandal that actually triggered this? It was a study after the Watergate scandal that found that hundreds of companies were, to some degree, making payments abroad to operate. Um, And the question was whether or not how this affects um, how America wants to operate, how we want American companies to operate. What's really interesting... And to is, be respected in different countries around the world as well, obviously. Absolutely. But we didn't see a lot of enforcement right in hmm. 1977. You know, you saw maybe a handful of cases over the years. A new regulation. People are just trying to figure out what to do with it, especially if that's been the norm in the past. Now you've got to sort of pull in the reins a, a bit. Right. And even today, we don't have a lot of case law on the FCPA because most of these cases, corporations and individuals will settle. These don't usually go to trial. But we didn't see even that for the first 25, 30 years of the FCPA. It was only really in the early 2000s that we saw a huge uptick in enforcement. That's, That's really amazing. So thinking about that whole process, and of course, looking at politics, no matter what your politics are, I mean, it took a president to sort of trigger this when you think of the Watergate scandal, which is kind of fascinating. Right. But what I will say is, while we did see a significant increase under President Obama's administration, that has continued. I think when President Trump took office, there was some discussion about whether there would be a decrease in FCPA enforcement. We may see some changes in how it's being enforced, but the, the uptick in enforcement actions is definitely still there. So you look at the enforcement actions or questions that are coming about, but as a, a member of a board, whether it be public or private, it doesn't matter. You can still be caught in this, correct? Right. I mean, a private company is, can be just right. as guilty as a, as, a, as a public company. It's not just for, for public company board exactly. members to be Exactly. So about. the SEC only has jurisdiction over, over the public companies. Public companies. Right. But the DOJ has jurisdiction over anybody who's doing this. And you have, I mean, they have jurisdiction over companies who are headquartered and incorporated in other countries. Um, just trading. As long as they're doing business here in the United States. Some sort of business in the United States. So uh, even just trading your shares, trading on NASDAQ or mm-hmm. the New York Stock Exchange, that's enough for them to get jurisdiction over companies that are headquartered abroad. So we think of this whole scenario as being sort of a black and white, what's right, what's wrong. But there are actually gray areas along here, too, where there may be a potential of misdoing or wrongdoing, but not really. How does a board really figure that one out? Or how's a director, even a CEO, where this might be happening underneath their nose? So a lot of these cases come forward from whistleblowers. We have seen cases where a CEO or a vice president is directly authorizing these payments. But a lot of times in these huge multinational corporations, it just doesn't make it all the way to the top. It's very difficult to know what's going on in the ground. And somebody has to feel uncomfortable or 
blocked in in order to become a whistleblower. I mean, you really, most people don't do that. You really have to be pushed into a corner to say, this is not right. This is wrong. Exactly. And be protected. Whistleblowers are protected here in the States. Are they protected anywhere else in the world? There are other places where they are protected, but a lot of these, you know, we we have a lot of cases in China, for example, or in places like India. And in those countries, the short answer is there's a lot of cultural pressure. India, I've heard this happens an awful lot, not to point fingers at anybody, but I've, I've heard some incredible stories that happened there in order to get things done. There, there was a recent case um, last week that came down about construction licenses and permits mm-hmm. and making inappropriate payments to a government official to get those approved. So th- that definitely happens. Yeah. And a lot of people in these cultures, it's a way of life for them. They don't even know that it's wrong. And so... And it's not wrong in their world because that's the way they were brought up. Right. Yeah. That's just how... Even you directors, operate. right? You've, you know, directors and CEOs of companies have gotten into that that space. In fact, you know, it's interesting. Um, we talked a while back about somebody that I had had some direct experience with. So, it was a chairman of a company board, and we were meeting at the end of the day, a glass of wine, and having a conversation. And he said, "I'm just waiting to make sure that my my guy, you know, quote unquote guy that I want on the board, is going to be clean." and okay to join us. And I said, what did you mean? And he mentioned the fellow's name. And I said, I hate to tell you this, but he's just been let go from his job. He was a country president under investigation for some issues that happened under him. But, you know, the buck stopped there. And so he was not squeaky clean to bring on this board. And the guy was shocked. And then in that particular case, uh, when a board actually knows that a candidate has some potentially nefarious issues going on behind in their background, whether they're responsible for it or not, that they've put all their money on that one that one horse. It just, it totally blows my mind. But that's what happened here. And I told them. And some, uh, some of these, you know, you may want to recruit someone who's done that before. I think there's a culture of hey, I mean, he had to get this done, right? How else would he have gotten that license? How else would he have operated in that environment, in that jurisdiction? This was a business cost. And they knew how to do it before they got caught. Exactly. Yeah, just when when are you going to get caught? That's the issue as things starting to tie up in this whole space. Right. And not just in the United States, right? They're tightening up all over the world. A lot of different countries are enacting their own anti-corruption and bribery legislation, and they're implementing it themselves with or without United States cooperation. So outside of the United States, which country or countries are coming up to our level or, and maybe we're not the ones who are really the forerunners in this? A lot of their legislation is is very similar to the FCPA and the FCPA came first. So we sort of set the standard to begin with. Right. But that being said, there is a lot of enforcement right now coming out of the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of cases coming out. And in certain respects, the UK Bribery Act is significantly more strict than the United States FCPA. Really? Um, So, for example, facilitation payments. um, These are payments that you're operating in, let's use the example of India. Right. And... uh, 
there has you know there you have a legal right to have some application approved for a license and it's not going through it's not going through it you have a legal right to do it somebody is just dragging their feet bureaucracy you know bureaucracy um, taking their sweet time Mm -hmm. a facilitation payment may be a little something grease the wheels a little bit yeah just to speed that process up and uh, for the most part, unless it constitutes a systematic um, systematic corruption or mm-hmm. intent, facilitation payments in the United States are kind of, they are somewhat permitted. Now, if you go the United Kingdom Bribery Act. None. None. Facilitation payments are completely prohibited. Hmm. So if I'm a U.S. company doing business in London, let's say, or even listed on the exchange, I have to abide by that stricter or that more strict rule or understand that first before the more lenient potential rule here in the States. Right. So in terms of the facilitation payments, right. they're more strict in the UK. But the reality is multinational corporations, they can be subject to these laws in so many different countries. And you need to understand you know, where are you headquartered? Where are your shares trading? Where are you um, headquartered? All of these things really matter. And in certain situations, well, especially right now, the United States has somewhat backed off of what they call piling on, bringing another case or another investigation into a company that has already is already in the process of being investigated by another country. But there's no guarantee of that, right. right? And there's no guarantee that you won't be subject to investigation by all of these other countries' regulatory authorities. Of the directors that I, I know, I know a lot of them, they're all intelligent people. But quite honestly, the depth of knowledge in this particular uh, situation across the con- across the, around the world, actually, not just across the country, but around the world, is probably a lot more shallow as I'm listening to you talk about this. So let's, uh, you know, I don't want to pick on any particular company, but say it's a large manufacturing company, and they do manufacturing in China and India, and they're based here in the United States, and they've got customers all around the world. This becomes very complicated for a board who's focused on other things to even think about. So having at least a top-line scenario understanding or education on what's happening so that their butts don't get caught in a sling too, quite frankly. I mean, I have no other way to put it. I mean, I do, but but it's a challenge. It really Absolutely. is a challenge. The best thing that a board can do to, you don't want to be in a situation where you have a whistleblower and then you're saying, front oh, page of the journal and now the, in the I financial times, I'm screwed. Right. right. Now I have a problem. Now I have to figure out what my next move is. FCPA investigations, even when they're internal, can cost millions of dollars a month, right? And think about that to your bottom line. Exactly. And not to mention potential fines if the SEC or the DOJ... And outside activists thinking, so if this has been going on, what else has been going on? And what other misunderstandings that could ultimately impact the shareholder? Because this does. I mean, the money's not going into making the company better from an operational and a financial perspective from customers. It's just, a, it's a CYA mode, right. really, which is interesting. So let's let's get into some of the more interesting cases. So there's this one case that is uh, the 1MDB case. So I'll let you explain a little bit about that. Right. So 1MDB is the story that keeps on giving. Every major news network is is covering this 
constantly. And this and is happening today. It's happening today. It is ongoing. And it involves jets and Leonardo da Vinci and Picasso paintings and um, all types of celebrities. Including- a bit of a shell game. The, was it um, the Wolf of Wall Street was also funded through this particular case? Absolutely. So so what one MDB, to, to back up for a second, sure. one MDB, this was a, a fund in Malaysia. It was a state-owned fund. And you had two individuals at this major bank who wanted to get the become the underwriters for the fund. And to that end, they made bribe payments to the officials who were charged with deciding who to hire, the people who were charged with deciding who would get those deals. Mm. And they made their bank a significant profit to be determined. But in addition to that, they got huge bonuses sure. for bringing in this business. The and individuals did. The, the, the individuals Individual did. executives, right? Absolutely. And esti- they're still estimating how much money was siphoned off of this fund. But there are estimates right now, $3.5 to $4 billion. Yeah, I just read the other day it was supposedly $4.5 billion, the largest financial fraud in history. Exactly. And when they were laundering this money into the United States, they did it by, as you mentioned, buying stake and funding some motion pictures, including Wolf of Wall Street and Dumb and Dumber 2. Oh, I didn't um, know that one. Well, maybe that was yeah. uh, sort of a, a picture of, of how stupid they were to begin with. right? <laughs> exactly. But the celebrities that the SEC and the DOJ are talking to, I think, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, just had Who was to a producer, right? Yeah, he had to give back a, a Picasso painting that was a gift. Um, you know, Paris Hilton apparently had gone out with several of the individuals related to this matter, and by some accounts was friends with the people. That hurts when your friends are the ones that are the crooks. Right. And companies were opened and closed, and money was sheltered and shuffled all over the place to sort of. Like I said in the beginning, it's a bit of a shell game. You didn't know where the funds were going to sort of hide that path of, of where it actually ended up going. Yeah. And you see that in most of these cases. In most FCPA cases, there's a shell company. Or an a- offshore company, which exactly. is then doing business in France or Germany and then back to the offshore and then back to the States. I mean, it, it's, it's amazing how complicated it can get to even follow the path. Exactly. And you have sham contracts which are fake invoices for fake services a lot of these times that aren't being rendered, but then are being reported on the books, right? And then you have all kinds of books and it's records It's amazing violations. that people actually think that they're not going to get caught doing this. But there's, there's a certain amount of uh, hubris that comes into play, I guess, in order to be able to do this. $4 billion is a lot of money. Yeah. And so that's kind of a fascinating case. So where are we in this particular situation now with this one MDB? You said it's coming to the forefront? Or is there just more layers that we, it's just so complicated, we don't know when it's going to end? Never ending layers at the moment. So for a law firm, <laughs> you guys love this, right? Oh, whoever, <laughs> yeah, the people representing these companies and these individuals are, are having a field day, I'm sure. But, it, you know, the facts when you get a case like this are so interesting, so intricate. Um, you know, you've asset forfeiture, they're trying to figure out how much they can collect and, and redistribute as necessary. But it's, it's hard to follow the money. You know, right. all of this is about following the money. But you do have the Malaysian prime minister who was was indicted. He was sort of in this at the heart of this originally, wasn't he? Or no? Yeah. And he and his wife were were arrested for it, and their home was raided, and they had a 
my one of my favorite facts is they had several hundred luxury handbags that they had. Um, I guess we're trying to. Amelda Marcos revisited, right? Yeah, so much, so many handbags. And we still have one individual related to this case who is a fugitive that people don't know where he is. Rumor has it he may be on a yacht somewhere lovely, right? But Or poof. Exactly. To make sure he stays quiet forever. Yes. And we, but what's so fascinating about this case is the level of international cooperation here for these deals to even get done or for the investigation to happen. So, There were sealed indictments against two of these individuals, and the day the Department of Justice unsealed the indictment, the Malaysian authorities arrested somebody at the request, at a provisional arrest warrant from the United States. That's pretty impressive. And it's on the exact same day. Um, And that person is, I believe he is not fighting extradition, but he is coming back to the United States to Mm -hmm. face those charges now. Wow. Um, so so that's where we are. So the executives who are involved in bringing these deals to their companies, the investment deals that got the bonuses, did they lose their bonuses? They're, they're I the mean, ones were they, they pulled back. Yeah. So yeah. they're the ones. So <laughs> in, in a long run, I guess the short the short story is they've lost their bonuses because they're having to pay their lawyers. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> right? else. One of them on the same day that one indictment came out. It was also unsealed that one of the other individuals involved, who had also received these bonuses, was forfeiting $43.7 million and had pled guilty. And that's significantly more than the bonuses. It's one of the largest individual FCPA sanctions we've ever seen. Wow. $43.7 million from one individual. That's a significant FCPA settlement. Yeah. And it's just, it's amazing to me the level of coordination. There's Singapore is involved. Um, the Swiss authorities are involved. And, and we're seeing that more and more now. We're finding that there are fewer ways to hide from the authorities, one, because of the cross-border cooperation, and two, because a lot of these foreign governments have their own corruption bribery laws. Well, that's good for those of us that are squeaky clean and feel a little sometimes questioning, how do, how do these people get away with this? So it's nice to know that there is justice in the in the end. And for those of you who are listening, I will make sure that there are a couple of links to some of these cases from articles so that you can go and do a little bit more investigation yourself and read the stories if you are not familiar with them. But that was a that's a kind of interesting one. Let's talk about another one that's going on. So there is something that was going on in um, with a Russian telecom. Russian telecom company. So this was actually just this week. And there is a company, the largest Russian mobile telecom company, headquartered, incorporated in Russia, but their shares trade on NASDAQ. And this settlement is something that was highly anticipated now for quite some time. MTS, which is the short name for it, Mm -hmm. had disclosed publicly in its public filings that it was anticipating a settlement right around the amount that they actually ended up paying. So they ended up agreeing to pay $850 million to the DOJ and to the SEC to, to resolve these charges. That's a big chunk as opposed to, you know, uh, let's say $10 million here and there, which in some cases, depending upon the size of the company, with some of the directors that I talked to, they said, well, that's a rounding error. And I mean, really, you know, not in my bank account. And it's almost twice as much as the bribes, actually, yeah. that were paid. So this case is really interesting, too, because it's not just... MTS, the same fact pattern 
We've seen this before. So the bribes were going to a woman named Golnera Karimova. She is the daughter of the former Uzbek president. And uh, uh, she, she's interesting. She, uh, so this involves a little bit of royalty and sparkle, shall we say, in a, in a different kind of light. Exactly. And in addition to being a businesswoman who was charged with overseeing the telecom industry, she was also a fashion designer and a pop singer. You can actually a little YouTube, bit of celebrity, a little bit of celebrity. You can YouTube her her music videos, and she ended up receiving nearly nine hundred million dollars in bribes from three different telecom Ooh. companies, all of which have now resolved these charges. So again, we've we've seen this coming for a while. We knew that these companies were in discussions right. to resolve these charges. Now, for the little bit of intrigue. And where is she, right? Where is she? So she was actually, she disappeared from public view in 2014. Hmm. Uh, she, rumor hasn't, had a falling out with her father. Well, yeah, dad's kind of not too <laughs> thrilled with, was it $900 million and uh, daughter's... A lot of public attention. Um, yeah. But she was allegedly convicted of embezzlement and sentenced to house arrest. Now, the interesting part was nobody has seen her or knew where she was. There were The rumors, mystery house. The mystery house. And there were rumors in 2016 that she was dead, that she had been poisoned. Now, what is possibly even more interesting, because it coordinates with the timing of this settlement with MTS, and then the day after her indictment, she was indicted. Hmm. And by the United States, is that the settlement with MTS was on March 6th. She's indicted on the 7th, and, on the but indicted and nobody, no, no physical person exactly. to actually indict because they're not here. Her, her indictment was unsealed on, okay. on March 7th. And we don't have an extradition treaty with um, Uzbekistan. But interestingly enough, Gulnara Karamova's daughter posted on social media that her mother was forcibly removed from their household and will be serving the remainder of her time in prison in Uzbekistan, also posted earlier this week. Mm. So uh, it sounds like they have, maybe she is not dead, but the mystery continues about uh, Gulnara Karimova and her, her role in this. So in the money that she acquired in this process is being returned or do, I mean, does she hang on? To, what happens in these cases when To the extent it still is- exists. To the extent still finding it that hasn't been used, right? Right. Well, there have been a lot of asset forfeiture cases filed in different countries to try to recover these assets. Right. But sometimes there's no guarantee. Sometimes it it may be impossible to quantify the profits. Nevertheless, find them. It's like finding stolen paintings that had just disappeared. Right. They might. You don't know what home they're in or what. Well, you would know a museum because it would be a public entity. But even still, you just don't know. Whose basement they may be hiding in. Tracking the money is really difficult. So a buyer beware when you buy your next painting and take it to the Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> yeah. We got Van Gogh paintings, Monet po- paintings, and uh, Picasso paintings involved in that case. So there's one other case that I want to bring forward, which is also kind of interesting because it's a company that I know a, a number of friends and colleagues have also had some sort of business or professional in- involvement with, and that's Cognizant. So this was in February of 2019. Cognizant is is even more interesting to me because it's really reflective of the trends we're seeing in enforcement right now. Okay. So this is a company who 
allegedly the CEO at the time, the president at the time, and the vice president and chief legal officer. I was about to say the, the chief legal officer. So now your right. your general counsel you know, legal officer is also involved in this. Yes. So at the time, no longer former president and chief legal officer. Right. At the time, they became aware, apparently by a video conference, that there were contractors and people in the lower tier of government in India who were requesting improper payments related to their construction sites um, and the permits related to those construction sites. And they actually found out about this from their contractor. So Cognizant had a subsidiary in India, but they were using a contractor for this project. So they did not themselves actually engage in the deed. It was the, the second party or third party that they dealt with. Exactly. And that's important. The president in this situation and the chief legal officer were very much aware by video conference, apparently, allegedly, that these payments were being requested and they authorized them. They they authorized this contractor to make those payments. And just because they did not make the payments. And the contractor still wants to get paid by Cognizant in order to get things done. Otherwise, they lose the contract themselves. Exactly. Exactly. So it's darned if you do, darned if you don't. For the contractor, thing. especially. Yeah, that's very yeah. difficult. This is kind of interesting when you think about companies hiring smaller subcontractors, they have to make sure they're doing their due diligence on them as well, or just know not to authorize payments that in order to, you know, keep that relationship going to to do the deed for you, basically. So the Department of Justice, they have some overarching things that they consider when they are looking at the effectiveness of a compliance program. And one of those enumerated factors is third-party due diligence. You need to know your contractors. You need to know if there are red flags involved, if they're hitting on the OFAC list. These are important things to know. And you need to be fully aware of the risks involved, not just with that contractor, but also just generally in the jurisdiction that you're operating in. But yes, you you need to know. Again, there are places where this is going to happen, but if you have knowledge of or, or you're authorizing these payments in some way. Well, that's an obvious, right. That's an obvious scenario. And some some of this will take place or may take place without your knowing, obviously, as the hiring company for for another subcontractor. So the good thing is just do your investigation, do your work, and then keep yourself clean, pretty right. much. And in some cases, trust your gut because you know what goes on in a particular jurisdiction, as you said, which is kind of the norm. Right. And I'll add to that, making sure that you have a robust compliance program. But as far as protecting yourself from investigations in multiple different countries, you know, the U.S. and the U.K., a lot of their what they consider to be an effective compliance program or hallmarks of an effective compliance program are the same. So make sure you have those compliance programs in place, because then when you do become aware of this, of any sort of potential misconduct, self-reporting, generally speaking, is encouraged. But if you have those compliance programs in place, regulators understand that these things happen. No company is perfect. It's more a matter of being proactive, making sure that you're not tacitly endorsing this by not having the compliance. Making sure that everybody knows down from the top to the bottom what should be done in case we'll call it an opportunity, right? (laughs) Opportunity, yeah. But that really comes down with making sure that, again, you've got the right CEO having the message. And in fact, that the people at the bottom where they might be seeing this, and I'm not just saying that this happens at the top or the middle, 
But people at the lower layers may actually be seeing this and more disturbed by it and feel have to feel comfortable having those conversations and bringing the, the conversation to the top without fear of retribution themselves. Yeah. Retaliation, whistleblower retaliation is something that is being ver- taken very seriously right but now. But it does happen, right? Uh, it absolutely happens. Yeah. You know, people don't want to hear anything like that. When you, they hear that something may be wrong, they want to, to make it go away is their first instinct. It takes courage. It takes courage. On both sides, to put that type of mantra inside the company, as well as to be the whistleblower who says this is, this is not right. Absolutely. And for companies who do encounter a whistleblower, whistleblowers have amazing options now for compensation if they go to the SEC. Quite a lot. Yeah. Not just, you know, they have a private right of action too, especially given depending on what state you're in, Mm -hmm. but they can go and they can get significant compensation if they do report to the SEC. There are time limits for that. So you want to make sure that your whistleblower is being heard, that your whistleblower is not feeling threatened. Because if your whistleblower goes and finds their own attorney, you may have a much bigger problem in addition to whistleblower retaliation. Well, because then it becomes public knowledge on a different level versus under the the quiet veil of a whistleblower program, correct? Right. Yeah. You want to be able to control the narrative. And the last thing you don't want, or the last thing you do, you, you want actually, is to have your story on the front page of any paper whatsoever or on the news. I mean, that's how do you respond to to the news media when they're trying to shame you? It's not a pleasant place to be, let alone in front of shareholders and customers. And it's it's a fast way to lose a business. It's a fast way to lose value for sure. Very much yeah. so. Well, thank you, Andrea. This has been fascinating. And if there's more information that we can have, you'll give it to me. We'll actually put a couple of links, like I said, in the show notes. So those who want to read into some of these stories, which are really quite fascinating. In fact, I was looking into the one MDB case a little bit more last night, which just like, you know, it makes your head spin. It has been a pleasure spending time with you. For those of you who are regular listeners, listeners to our show, please remember we are on five different networks, including iTunes, FM Player, Spotify, Google Play. I think we're now on CastBox too. So we're real easy to find and we look forward to seeing you here again or have you listening to us again real soon. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you, Andrea. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Nancy. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you with the support of Resources Global Professionals, the company that delivers intellectual capital on demand to the world's most recognized companies and corporate leaders. RGP, Resources Global, the experts you want to call when you need experience to solve your business problems. www.rgp.com.